0: Sarah, thank you very much indeed. Well, if you're new to us, you might like to know that uh, on the inside of the white bulletin, there is an outline which uh, tells you where we're going in the next few minutes. And if you're curious about the yellow question sheet, um, that is the sheet that we use in our midweek Bible study on a Wednesday, and it is based on the passage that we're studying together this morning. So um, please have the outline open in front of you as well as the Bible passage and I'm going to ask for God's help. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for giving to us the Scriptures. We thank you that the Scriptures are God-breathed and able to make us wise for salvation. And so we ask that you would speak words to us this morning that are timely, needful, helpful, and wonderful. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. Well, I want to begin uh, this morning by asking you to consider two different accounts of the same thing. The uh, first account takes place on earth. It's the middle of the day, but it's completely dark. And right at the centre of the scene uh, is a man hanging in agony on a cross. And around him are various groups. Some are mocking him, saying, well, he saved others, he can't save himself. Others are indifferent, the soldiers. Uh, They've done it all before. It's just a job to them. And they're not really interested in the death of Jesus. They're just busy dividing his clothes among themselves. And then there's another group, the close family, friends, and they are in deep distress. They, They won't see him again. But their tears are not simply tears of grief, they're also tears of confusion, because they thought he was the one, uh, that he was the Saviour, that he was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. and now he's dead. And uh, that's the first account, you'll find it in each of the four Gospels. Here's a different account. And it's the passage that Sarah read for us so beautifully a moment ago, Revelation chapter 5. It's a complete contrast, isn't it? Uh, Here, we're not on earth, we're in heaven. Instead of darkness, the scene is, is flooded with blazing light. And right at the heart of the scene, there is a throne. And on the throne, there is a slain lamb. A picture, of course, of the crucified Christ. This time, the atmosphere is completely different. With the exception of one individual, this scene is characterised not by wailing, but by worship. There are the four living creatures, representing creation. There's the 24 elders representing the church throughout the ages, and there's thousands and thousands of angels. And as far as the eye can see, in every direction, every creature in heaven and on earth and on the sea are joining in the worship of the lamb that was slain.
1: Can I ask you,
0: where do you fit into each of these pictures? It's unlikely, I think, but uh, it's just possible there's someone here this morning who is among the mockers. Uh, In your heart, you think it's all a load of nonsense. Uh, Fancy thinking that a man dying in agony on a cross could be the divine Son of God. The idea seems ridiculous to you. Others are like the soldiers, indifferent. Uh, You never really think about these things. They're far too busy with the pressures of ordinary everyday life. Finding a job, finishing an assignment. Can't really think about Jesus. And then others can identify with that weeping group I mentioned. And you feel something of the sadness of the death of Jesus, but you don't really understand it. You're confused. And then the last group. I guess most people here this morning. And you're saying, well, I am among the worshippers, praising the Lamb that was slain. Can I say that where you are matters? It matters a lot. Whether you are with the multitudes worshipping Jesus or not will determine not just the course of your life here on earth but also your eternal destiny. And that is the question I want us to have in our minds this morning as we look at Revelation chapter 5. Firstly, a quick recap for the benefit of those who are new to us. The first three chapters of the book of Revelation are fairly simple and straightforward. They are descriptions of seven churches. And uh, over the years, wise men have seen these descriptions uh, not only as a description of the church in the first century, but as a description of the church throughout the ages, throughout history. The uncomfortable thing is that when you travel round these seven churches, although some of them are alive and full of worship, full of witness, some of them are in rather poor shape. And uh, you begin to wonder what's happened and whether Christ has left them completely. Indeed, in the last of those seven churches, the church of Laodicea, you find they're very lukewarm, and the Lord Jesus Christ is standing outside the door of the church. They seem to be spiritually dead. And you're worried. What's God doing? Why isn't Christ looking after his church? Sometimes we think that today, don't we? We wonder whether we can believe in a powerful Christ any longer when we see the state of the visible church in the world. And uh, that's why when we started last week, it was a tremendous relief in chapter 4 and verse 1 to find that we were taken up to heaven... And through the eyes of the Apostle John, we were able to look through that open door into heaven to see what is actually happening in the control room of the universe. Is someone in charge? Or has heaven lost control of the situation here on earth? And to our great relief, we saw that in chapter 4, Almighty God is on the throne. And uh, the message of last week was that the God who made the whole world, the God who made us, hasn't given up on us. He's still on the throne of the universe, and He continues to oversee His creation and His church. So you see, the picture that some people have in their minds that God has wound up the world and wound up the church rather like a clock, but now he's left us to get on with it. That is completely wrong. I'm rather fond of clocks. Uh, I have one at home that's more than 200 years old. But uh, every two or three years it has to be cleaned. And if I don't get it cleaned, then eventually it stops working. You sometimes get the impression, don't you, that the church is rather like my clock that no one's given it a good clean recently, and that it's not actually working in the way that it should. And you say, well, is God there or is he not? Chapter 4 was saying, yes, he is. The creator is still there. He's not on sabbatical. He's looking after his church. He's on the throne. And now when we come to chapter 5, we come to something new. It's the most important thing of all. It concerns every single human being on the planet without exception. Very few know anything about it. What is it? Well, there's so much here we can't possibly look at every detail, so I'm just simply going to pick out three phrases to summarise each of the three scenes in the vision. The first phrase comes in verse four, where John says, I wept. And then in verse six, he says, I saw. And then in verse 11, he says, I heard. And those three phrases, I wept, I saw, I heard, they will take us through the three scenes in this vision and show us the message of the chapter. So, scene one, I wept, verse four. Why did John weep? Well, there is God Almighty on the throne, and in his hand is a scroll, which we would say simply is a book. And the book is sealed with seven seals, which means that it is absolutely and completely closed. And we know from what follows in the rest of the book of Revelation that this book contains God's plans and purposes for the world. The significance of the writing on both sides is that there's no space for anything else to be added in. Uh, Normally, you only wrote on one side of the scroll, but here the writing is on both sides. So there are no gaps... In God's plan. God doesn't have to sort of see how things pan out and fill in the details later. No. It is God's complete, detailed, unchangeable plan of salvation and judgment. But it's sealed. And uh, God's plan is only going to begin to be fulfilled when the seals are broken and the book is opened. And it's at this rather frustrating moment that uh, John sees a mighty angel asking, well, is there anybody in the entire universe who's worthy to come to Almighty God, take the book from God's hand, and open it so that we can know the wisdom of God and his will can begin to be done? Is there anybody who is equal to the task of carrying out God's plan? It's an important question, isn't it? Who's worthy to open the scroll? The answer comes very strongly in scene one, and it's there in verse three. And one of the things I like about the book of Revelation is that it is not afraid to repeat itself. Uh, Rather, I guess, like a parent with a child. And there's one word that is very strongly underlined here. It is the word, no one. Verse 3, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. So the message is crystal clear, isn't it? There is no one at this point who is adequately qualified to open this sealed book. And so forever and ever, God's wisdom will not be revealed and God's plan will not be carried out. No one will ever know what God had to say and no one will ever see God's will done on earth because the book remains closed. That is why John weeps. And John's weeping, you see, highlights one of the critical differences between New Testament Christianity and a great deal of so-called Christianity today. John knows that there will be no salvation for God's people, no coming of God's kingdom, no hope, for the human race, unless someone can accomplish the purposes of Almighty God and fulfil his promises. And John weeps about that. This week I discovered that every time you find an apostle weeping in the New Testament, it is always because he's burdened either for his own need of forgiveness... Or the needs of others for forgiveness. Uh, you remember the Apostle Peter weeps because of his sin. The Apostle Paul weeps over a church that has lost its way. And because so many apparently religious people are enemies of the cross of Christ. And here John weeps because nobody is worthy of To open the scroll. Can I ask you, what do you weep about? Do you weep about your need for God's forgiveness? Do you weep for your friends because they're perishing because they've rejected Christ? Do you weep for the state of the church in South Africa? Many Christians give the impression. So they don't really care about these things. It's true, some are angry, some are concerned. But is anybody actually weeping? Not many, I think. You see, in the book of Revelation, everything that the Lord has said in the opening chapters about enabling us to overcome all of the challenges of living a godly life in a fallen world, all of that depends on someone being worthy to open the seals and fulfil God's plan. But as far as John can tell, there's no one. Now that, you see, is the first challenge for us in chapter 5. You and I have to put ourselves in John's shoes and feel something of the suffering and the sorrow of a world that has turned its back on God and knows nothing of his plans to save us, to save us from the mess. John wept about it. Well, that's scene one. Scene two I saw verse 6. Actually, the phrase, I saw, comes several times in the chapter. He actually begins in verse 1, doesn't he, by saying, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. But uh, by far the greatest and most dramatic thing that he sees comes in verse 6. Now think about the context. What has he just been told? Well, in verse 5, he's been told about someone who is strong enough to go up to God's right hand and take that scroll and open it. And the elder says it's a lion. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Now that, of course, is Old Testament language that speaks about God's Messiah the one that God had promised to send to his people thousands of years before. And for all those years, they've been, as it were, looking over the horizon, waiting for that strong son of God to come and sort out all the problems, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So naturally, you see, at this point, John is excited. I expect he dried his eyes pretty quickly, and he starts to look with eagerness For that strong lion to appear. And now we look at verses 6 and 7. Because when he sees someone approaching the throne to take the scroll, to his absolute amazement, he sees not a lion, but a lamb. Now you can't have a more dramatic contrast than that. He's expecting a lion but what he actually sees is a lamb. Now, can I say this is not meant to be visualised? Don't go away and try and paint this at home this afternoon. What he's doing is he's appealing to your intellect. He's speaking to your mind. And what he's doing is he's saying that the, the strong son of God has come in a lamb who was slain, referring, of course, to the Lord Jesus. And what a powerful picture of weakness it is, isn't it? Some of you know very well that when a a company tries to find a a logo to reflect their identity, they'll look for an animal or something that reflects their values, and a country will try and do that as well. So, for example, in Russia it's the bear, in Britain the lion, in the United States the spread eagle, in, in India it's the tiger... And, of course, these are all powerful, kind of fearsome animals and birds able to do precisely what they want in the world of nature. Now, you see, in this book, which is so very rich in symbols, you might think that the author could come up with a better logo for the kingdom of God than a lamb. And yet, you see, only the kingdom of heaven would dare to choose as its symbol something so helpless. Now here's the point. The author, you see, is trying to ram home to our understanding that the Jesus Christ of the Gospels who seemed to lose every battle on earth against his enemies and who finally lost his life, that he is actually the most powerful influence in the entire universe. That's the point. It's he alone who's able to open the book. He alone who is able to tell us what's in it. He alone that can ensure God's will is done till the end of time. He alone has the authority and the power for all that. In fact, as we read on, the complete the complete picture in verse 6 shows us that actually he's not weak at all. Because we read on in verse 6 that he has seven horns and seven eyes. Uh, In the Old Testament, the horn is a symbol of sovereign power and the seven eyes are a picture of being able to see everywhere. So this is a picture of somebody who has all power because seven is the number of completeness and seven eyes is a picture of perfect knowledge, complete knowledge. His eyes go out into all the world and let's get it absolutely clear in our minds this morning that his eyes have absolutely no difficulty penetrating your heart and mine. There is nothing in this church this morning, no hope, no fear, no doubt, no worry, no sin, absolutely nothing in our minds that Jesus can't see absolutely right now. You see, you and I have this ability, don't we, to put up the shutters in our conversations with one another uh, without even realising Uh, We'll do that with each other over coffee after the service. You can uh, put this into practice and see if I'm right. But you see, if you ask me about a question, about something that I don't particularly want to talk about, well, you know, I can easily find a way of avoiding giving you a direct answer. And you can do the same with me. I can't tell what you're thinking, you can't tell what I'm thinking. And that's okay. Uh, We're not necessarily meant to let everybody in on our privacy. But my dear friend, do be clear, you cannot keep the eye of Christ out. So this is an all-powerful saviour king. And we find that when he goes to take the scroll from the hand of Almighty God, the four living creatures which represent creation and the 24 elders representing the church, or if you prefer, the new creation, they immediately fall down before him. And in their hands they're each holding a harp, which is a sign of praise, and a bowl of incense, which uh, are prayers. And they fall down to offer him what must always be offered to God, Our praise and our prayers. Please will you notice in verse 9 that what they particularly worship the Lamb for is that he was slain and with his blood he purchased, or if you prefer, the older translations have the word ransomed, he ransomed men for God from every tribe and language and people. And nation. Notice what it does not say. It does not say that he ransomed everybody. It says he ransomed, out of every tribe, out of every language, out of every people, out of every nation, a kingdom of men and women for God. Now that is God's purpose in the world. Not everyone is going to be saved. Not everybody is going to join in this wonderful chorus of praise. But out of every nation, God is calling a people to worship Him. And it is through Jesus that He ransoms them. Now John saw that. With one sort of blinding insight, he saw it. He saw the answer. Of course, it's Jesus Christ. Remember, will you, that this was not that long after the Apostle John had seen Jesus on earth. John didn't see it then. But now he sees that Jesus is the answer. A few moments ago I asked you whether you had wept over your own sinfulness and your own need for forgiveness. And now I want to ask you this question. Have you ever seen this? Have you ever seen that Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the ultimate answer to all the world's problems? Because he is the Redeemer and he is the only person able to ransom a people for God. What does that mean? Turn quickly, please, to 1 Timothy 2 on page 842. 1 Timothy, chapter 2, page 842. And the Apostle Paul here speaks about Jesus being a ransom in the most unforgettable language. Uh, End of verse 3, uh, God our Savior, he says wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth that's what he wants for there is one God well obviously if there's one God he wants us all to know the truth about him and so far practically everybody in Cape Town agrees with that even people who don't go to church they all say yes of course there's only one God and of course he wants us all to know him but there are many ways to know him And uh, the trouble with you people at St Barnabas is you're far too narrow-minded and uh, you keep pointing us to Jesus. But we think there are other ways and we prefer other ways. But if that's what you think, look carefully at what God's Word says. It says there's one God and there is one mediator between God and men. In other words... One road to God. One way of finding God. One mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus, and here's the word, who gave himself as a ransom for all men and women. Isn't that a tremendous statement? Have you ever seen that? One God... And you probably say, yes, I know that. One mediator? Have you seen that? Or are you still denying it? The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He's able to represent every man, woman and child in church this morning, every person in your family, and bring them all to God, because he is a ransom for them, and he has paid their price. John saw all that. Have you seen it? That is scene two. Let's move on to scene three. Verse 11, I heard. Then I looked and heard. Now in chapter five, John hears uh, three marvellous anthems. The first one we've already talked about. In verses 9 and 10, which is really the anthem of the redeemed. It's the church's anthem. And John describes it as a new song because it's the anthem that you can only sing when Christ has forgiven your sins and by his Spirit changed your heart. And if he has done that for you, you will certainly be singing already. Because, you see, church history shows very clearly that when the church is revived and when people enter into an experience of newness of life, they begin to sing. New songs are written. I don't know whether you noticed, but last week the Gospel Coalition uh, published a list of the best Christian uh, music albums written in the last ten years. Uh, In order to qualify, in order to get on the list those songs had to be both theologically and artistically rich. And I'm not an expert, you have to ask Alice about these things, but two things struck me straight away. One was just how much material has been written over the last ten years. It is a vast collection. Uh, I've no idea how much of it is theologically rich, but the Gospel Coalition are a pretty good guide. I think they can be trusted, and I assume they've checked. But the second thing that struck me was that the vast majority of these composers are American. Now, that ought not to surprise us. Because, you see, in America, in our generation, God has raised up some of the most effective Bible teachers in the world today. Men like John Carson, Tim Keller, John Piper, Al Mola, Paul Tripp and so on. And many, many thousands of people have been converted through the ministries of these men and the direct result of that is that more people are writing, singing and wanting to sing Christian songs. We may not like all the songs but Christians are singing. And that is a very, very good sign that God is at work. The second anthem in this chapter is in verse 12 and it's the anthem of the angels. So after the anthem of the church praising the Christ who's redeemed them, John hears the voices of the angels. And the emphasis here is on the sheer number of them millions of angels are singing this song. And now they're not here singing so much about Christ as the Redeemer because angels have never fallen. So what are they singing about? Well, they are acknowledging what is in a sense new for them. And that is that the throne is occupied not just by God Almighty, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. So they are celebrating his deity. And their theology is absolutely first class because they are in no doubt whatsoever that to Christ must be given the seven things in verse 12. Have a look at verse 12. They have no doubt that to Christ must be given power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honour, glory, praise. And if someone receives all of that, they must be God. Now, have you heard that? Is Jesus as big as that to you? C.S. Lewis wrote a number of wonderful children's stories, and I've told some of you about this before, uh, an an extract from Prince Caspian, uh, where C.S. Lewis records a conversation between Aslan the lion and Lucy the child. Welcome, child, said the lion. Aslan, said Lucy, in surprise, you're bigger. That's because you're older, said the lion. Not because you are bigger, asked Lucy. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Now, isn't that brilliant? And isn't it absolutely true? You know, before we were converted, uh, Christ was little more than a swear word for some of us. In our minds, he was very, very small indeed. But as soon as we were converted, that stopped immediately. And every year since, he's become bigger. Is that right? All the answers to prayer, uh, the changes that he's made in our lives, the extraordinary, most unlikely people we've seen converted. He's bigger, isn't he? And then there's the last anthem in verses 13 and 14. And here every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea is singing. All creation join in this wonderful anthem of praise because they see that on the throne, now listen to this, there is not only God Almighty but the Lamb because, of course, they are one. And they give praise and honour and glory and power to them for ever and ever. Now friends, that is what they are singing in heaven this morning. Have you joined them yet? I wonder if in your heart you have ever fallen down before Jesus Christ and said you are worthy to receive all that is in my life And today I offer all of it to you for the first time. Please will you cleanse me? Please will you ransom me? I'm going to ask you all to stand. And we're going to say the prayer in verses 9 and 10 together. Let's stand and Amiel will put it up on the screen for us. Together. Lord Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Amen. Do remain standing.